So here we are today, and we're in the 139th Psalm. Some of you will know that we have been looking at some of these different Psalms. We did the Psalm 1, and then we did Psalm 23, and Psalm 46, and Psalm 103 last time. Now here we are at Psalm 139, and uh, in one sense, there is no rhyme or reason as to why I am uh, taking these psalms uh, the way I am, but other than just feeling like the Lord is, has been leading for these psalms. And so we're going to continue on Sunday morning, even in my absence, the guys that are going to be filling in are going to be continuing with the series in the psalms. So uh, they will be looking at a number of other psalms. And, and what I've tried to do, as I think I said before, is just kind of get a sense from the Spirit as to, you know, what He would have us to look at on each particular Sunday. And although there are many other psalms that precede uh, Psalm 139 that we didn't look at, I just kind of felt like, well, this is, this is what the Lord has for us today. So this... Um, this psalm is, is really a wonderful psalm. And the, one of the wonders of the psalm is how uh, in the psalm, David reveals to us some very important things about God. Now, we've all heard the term theology. The term means the, the study of God. And in Theology, when you're studying theology, you, you're usually studying uh, what, what would be called like a systematic theology. Systematic theology, what it does is it takes all of the, everything that's said on various topics that the Bible speaks of and, and kind of compiles them in a systematized way and then uh, you, can, you can approach it like that. So uh, say, for example, uh, one aspect of systematic theology would be to consider everything the Bible says about the love of God. Um, and, and what it does generally is it just gives you a, a ton of biblical references to, to what the Bible says. The systematic theologies can be good or they can be kind of dry and boring. It kind of depends on the author of the systematic theology. Uh, but, but one of the reasons sometimes they can be dry and boring is because the passages are pulled out of the biblical text and they're kind of just analyzed um, by themselves. So sometimes theology can be a little bit like um, working in a, in a laboratory. You know, you're kind of taking God and putting him there on the table and dissecting him and, you know, kind of finding out these different parts. All theology is derived from the Bible. But the beautiful thing that the Bible does is it keeps all of these great theological truths in the context of life, which makes it much different than just uh, the dry information. And here in this 139th Psalm, David lays out for us some really amazing theology concerning God. But the beauty of the Psalm is that <clears throat> he keeps it connected to life. It's not just information being put out there. It's being shared in the context of, of his own human experience. And 
the things that he tells us about God here in this uh, 139th Psalm are uh, these things. Uh, number one, God knows everything. Number two, God is present everywhere. Number three, God has all power. And then ultimately and finally, uh, he tells us that God is love. So we wanna look at those things today and we wanna see again how David keeps them connected to life which then goes beyond just giving us head knowledge or information, it, it gives us life knowledge and it gives us uh, the opportunity for experience. So here in this 139th Psalm, in um, the, the first six verses, you have David speaking of what theologians call the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God, meaning that God, as I said, knows everything. In verses seven through 12, you have a declaration of the omnipresence of God. Omnipresence, meaning that God is everywhere. And then in verses 13 through 16, you have a declaration of the omnipotence of God. Omnipotence, meaning that God has all power. And then finally, as we'll see, uh, David also expounds on the, the great attribute, the, the love of God. But let's look at uh, each one of these for a moment. So number one, God's omniscience. David says here, he, he expresses God's omniscience by saying, you know my sitting down, you know my rising up, you comprehend my path, verse three, and my lying down, you are acquainted with all my ways, and look what he says in verse four. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So here David is expressing the, the omniscience of God. God knows everything. God knows what you're gonna say before you know what you're gonna say. Isn't that amazing? Before the word ever forms on your tongue, God already knows it. Before the thought ever comes to your mind, God already knows it. And this idea of God's omniscience is really telling us that God knows everything that could ever be known and that he knows it thoroughly and he knows it all uh, presently. You see, God doesn't learn anything. God is not surprised by anything. There's, with God, there's not a, like a looking down at the corridor of history. And, and seeing, you know, what's gonna happen. God knows it, it, it all in advance. As a matter of fact, there's a passage that says, uh, our lives before God are like a tale that's already been told. God knows everything about your life. He knew everything about your life and my life and every other life before we were ever born. He knew every single detail. And he knows every single detail. So he knows all things thoroughly. There's, you know, if you think about this, it's, it's really kind of mind boggling, you know? And, and I wanna encourage you throughout the week, this week, to just get some time by yourself and to sit down and think about this. And you know, if you think hard enough about it, you might, you know, sizzle a few uh, brain cells because it, it can just get like that. When you start thinking of all that there is to know, all of the information that there is 
in the entire, uh, not only universe, but just beyond the universe. Everything, God knows it all. And he knows it perfectly. And he knows it all instantly. You know, sometimes we're in a little bit of a quandary because sometimes we think, well, you know, how does God, um, how does he hear my prayer when the person next to me is praying too? And maybe it's getting a little confusing. He's got to listen to us both at the same time. Well, the fact of the matter is there are millions and millions of people, maybe even billions of people that are praying simultaneously. How does that work for God? Isn't it a little bit confusing? No. He already knows all of our prayers before we ever prayed them anyway. He knows them perfectly. So when you start thinking about God's omniscience, it is an, it's really astounding. And you know these truths about God are so important that we know them because believe me, there are certain times in life when this reality is going to be so comforting, so helpful to you practically to know that God, God knows. You know, sometimes things are happening in our lives and people are um, maybe attacking us. They're maybe slandering us. They're, you know, they're, they're doing things. They're lying about us or something like that. And, you know, I know for myself, oftentimes I just fall back on this. Lord, you know, you know me. You know the truth about me. You know them. You know what they're doing. Nobody's getting away with anything in the end. And, and a lot of times that just becomes a very comforting thing. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter four, verse 13, that reminds us of this truth. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows it all. So that's God's omniscience. Secondly, David speaks of God's omnipresence. And as I said, verse seven, he says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and most commentators believe that uh, the reference here is not to the sea in the sense of the oceans. The reference here is, is uh, really to the universe. If I could take the wings of the morning and if I could fly to the very edge of outer space, there you would be as well. And so this great truth that God is present everywhere at all times. Again, the Bible teaches this in a number of places. Jeremiah 23, 23 says, God is speaking. He said, am I a God near at hand and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is everywhere. There's no place that God isn't. You know, sometimes we mistakenly think, well, God's down at the church and I'm over here, I gotta get to the church so I can connect with God. Well, you know, the truth is God, God is everywhere. But he's not everywhere in the same way. He's present everywhere, but in some places he's present to bless, like he is here today and other churches where people are gathered to worship him. But, you know, if we went to another time zone, we could find places 
where people are partying and people are sinning and people are committing crimes and, and all of that's going on. And guess what? God is there too. But he's not there in the same way that he's here. He's not there to bless. In many cases, he's there to restrain. In some cases, he's there just simply observing. In some cases, he's there bringing judgment. So we, as God's people, we need to remember that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But he's especially and uniquely present when we seek him or when we gather in his name. And then thirdly, we see here a reference to God's omnipotence. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God has all power. And it's interesting here that David, in expressing the omnipotence of God or the almightiness of God, he chooses as an example that illustrates God's omnipotence, he chooses to consider his own existence, his own creation, his, his uh, physical being. And the Bible, in speaking about God's omnipotence, it will do that as well as it will look at just the, the created order itself, sometimes looking at the, the universe. You know, you have the, what's called the macrocosm and you have the microcosm. So the macrocosm is, is the whole universe. The microcosm is, you know, what you look at under a microscope, like your cells and all of that kind of thing. And, and the Bible points to both of those things as the illustrators of God's great power. So God has all power. He created us and he created the universe that we live in. And although David doesn't really consider so much the universe here, let's consider it ourselves for a moment. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, the Lord is speaking there and he puts forth a challenge to the people who are uh, maybe not convinced of his great power. And he says this, he says, lift up your eyes on high. So he says, in other words, he says, look up in the sky, look up at the heavens. And then he says, and see who created these things, who brings out their host by number and calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. You see, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look up at the sky at night, we ought to, if, if, we're, if we would have a moment of really getting it, you know what we would do? We'd look at the sky and we'd fall on our knees and we'd say, oh God, you are so amazing. But, but oftentimes all of that is sort of hidden from us, isn't it? We look up at the sky and we just think, okay, well, there's the sky. Oh, there's the moon, it's over there. And, you know, we see the twinkling of the little stars that are actually not little at all, as we'll see in a moment. But, you know, we just, we just take this stuff for granted, don't we? And, and part of our problem, all of our problems is 
we don't know God as well as we should because we don't take the information that he's got right before our eyes and really appreciate it like we ought to. But this is what God says to do. He says, lift up your eyes. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars. Look at the heavenly bodies. And know that I created these things. I, I call them all by name, actually. Now, scientists say that in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, they say that there are between one to four billion stars. Now, I mean, that's, you know, quite a discrepancy, really, one to four. I mean, but, you know, what it shows you, though, is, is really the impossibility of counting them. I mean, there could be one billion, but there could be four billion. It's hard to say. But then they say that there could be as many as 170 billion galaxies in the universe. So, again, you know, all of this stuff is just so astounding. I was talking to a friend earlier, and we were talking about some of these things. I said, you know, I've had moments in my life where I've, I've kind of just had like these, these brief seconds of getting the, the majesty of God in regard to the heavens. And I said, you know, the response was disturbing. I was disturbed. When you really understand the greatness of God, the power of God, it, it can be disturbing. Speaking of stars, the sun, which is 93 million miles from where we are presently located, the sun is approximately 865,000 miles in diameter. Now, to give you an idea of how big that is, you could take 109 Earths and put them side by side, they, they would go across the face of the sun. Now, the sun is a star, right? And the sky is full of stars. And to us, we look up and it seems like those are little stars, but they're, they're anything but little. The, what they estimate now to be the largest star, at least in the, the, the known universe, the largest star is estimated to be approximately 2,500 times the size of the sun. And think about that. 109 Earths across the face of the, of the sun. And then you're going to take that orb and you're going to multiply it 2,500 times. See, this stuff is inconceivable, really. But this is what the Bible is talking about when we're talking about God. He's the omnipotent one. He's the creator. Now, like I said, David doesn't use the heavens. He rather makes reference to the body. For you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb, verse 13. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know that, that word fearfully means, um, it's the idea is like when we realize our complexity, that we are awestruck. That's what the word fearfully means. I'm, I'm fearfully made. I, like when I understand the, the complexity of, of even who I am, that 
could, like I said, it can disturb you. It can strike fear in you. It's awe-inspiring, fearfully and wonderfully made. So the Lord says, Isaiah 45, 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. Just a quick note. Know this, that the Bible says from cover to cover that God created us. It doesn't just say it in Genesis chapters one and two. Some people mistakenly think that, you know, Genesis one and two, that's that, that mythological creation story uh, that we know, you know, can't be the facts. Uh, but they fail to recognize that the Bible, that's where it starts, but all the way through, right on through the book of Revelation. It is specifically stated that God has created us. He's created the human body as, as well as the universe. Now, the human body contains 10 to the 28th power atoms. That's one followed by 28 zeros, which means that our bodies are a million times more complex than the universe. So we're talking about the, the vastness of the universe and the complexity of everything. But your body is even more fascinating. Sometimes people say, and I heard somebody say it this week, as a matter of fact, they say, well, you know, uh, people who are atheistic or agnostic or whatever, they say, well, you know, I just don't see any evidence for God. Really? Uh, look in the mirror. <laughs> look in the mirror. Get an anatomy book. You know, ponder your own physical body. And if you don't see any evidence for God then, and then you're, you're obviously blind. Because when you start to look at the body, it is just, again, it's, it's, it's astounding. Every day, your heart contracts 100,000 times, pumping blood through 60,000 miles of blood vessels. This is going on every day. Your heart will beat two and a half billion times in your lifetime. You know, there's, there's no pump ever made by any man that remotely meets the efficiency of the human heart. David says, you form my inward parts. Now, the, the amazing thing to me is, you know, David lived in the pre-scientific age, obviously. He didn't know about DNA like we know today. He didn't know these kinds of really complex things about all of his internal organs and so forth. But he obviously knew enough to know that this was all absolutely magnificent. And he expresses that here talking about the body for just another moment. One writer said this, he said, the eye is an organ of unprecedented sensitivity, precision, complexity, and beauty. It has 266 identifiable characteristics, and it is the most data-rich physical structure on the body. It goes on and says, the eye's retina is composed of photoreceptor cells that are light sensitive, converting the image into electrical signals that can in turn be interpreted by the brain. Now that, that's so crazy to me because you know when we look at each other, we, we think that, well, you know, I'm, of course I'm looking at you through my eye and you know, my eye's telling you, but actually what's happening is, is lights coming in and hitting the retina, 
And then these photoreceptors are sending an electrical signal to your brain, and your brain is interpreting those and telling you, this is what you're seeing. That's weird. <laughs> That's what's happening. But when we look at each other, when we look into each other's eyes, we're oblivious to that, right? We're not thinking that any of that's going on. But listen, in contrast to the eye, a camera takes pictures, or your, your eye takes pictures continuously and develops them instantaneously. And it's not just pictures. Your eye, you know, is like a video camera. It's just continually taking and continually developing. And the writer goes on to say, what your eye performs many times over every second would take today's most advanced computers years to simulate. So again, I say to the person who says, well, I don't see any evidence for God. Look in the mirror. Get an anatomy book. Study the eye. Study the ear. Just so the eye converts photons into electrical signals that can be seen by the brain, so the ear converts sound waves into electrical, electrical signals that can be heard by the brain. Again, you know, we hear beautiful music or we hear a beautiful voice like mine that's speaking to you right now. And, <laughs> but it's not, that the crazy thing is it's not really my voice that you're hearing, it's your brain interpreting the sound waves that are coming through your ear. Isn't that wild? That is just, all of that is so fascinating. The ear has a million moving parts. The ear has a million moving parts. How, how could this little thing have a million moving parts? And listen, the ear can distinguish between 2,000 different pitches. Amazing, all of this stuff. You see, this is, this is all so fascinating. And what David is doing here is he's looking at this saying, Lord, you, this is what you've done. And, and like I said in the beginning, David wasn't intending to write out a, a systematic theology here, but he's just expressing these truths which are then passing on to us this amazing uh, theological information. You know, I read and studied and taught this psalm for years and didn't see clearly that, that theological connection, how each one of these things, God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, I didn't see how they were, they were laid out, but they're right there. Now, the all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful God, here's what, this is the most astounding thing. He's knowable. He's knowable. You see, we are gathered here today and other believers are gathered around the world and we, we come together to worship a God who is accessible, a God who is knowable, a God that we, we actually have a relationship with. We're not just going through a ritual. We're not just doing a religious thing so we can somehow uh, hopefully appease a God that's out there and uh, obtain his favor and maybe, you know, eventually end up in a good place like heaven. That's not what's happening. It is happening, unfortunately, in some places because it's, everything's just been reduced to religion. But 
what David is sharing with us here is the knowability of God. Remember, as I said, the unique thing here is that David frames these attributes of God in the context of his relationship with God. That's the beauty of it. And so... God knows everything. David says he knows my sitting down. He knows my rising up. God is present everywhere. Yeah, even if I took the wings of the morning and could fly to the farthest regions of outer space, God would be there. Uh, God has all power. He created me. He created my inward parts. All of this complexity is due to who he is. But now we come to the most important attribute And that is the attribute of love. God is love. And David expresses that in verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts toward me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. That is a declaration of God being a God of love. Now listen, this is where we need to understand this. If it were simply that God was all-knowing and everywhere present and had all power. And we must add the fact that God is holy because that is surely one of the clear revelations of Scripture. That would be something that would inspire dread rather than joy because God's holy, but I'm a sinner. And there in the psalm, remember verse 19, David, David cries out, Lord, when will you slay the wicked? So you see, if, if love is not part of the picture of God's nature, then I'm faced with a holy God who knows everything about me, whom I can never hide from, and who has all power and cannot be resisted or opposed ultimately. That is frightening. But the truth of the matter is this same God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent is love as well. And that's what David declares when he says, how precious also are your thoughts toward me. We know that God is love And David expresses it here. He knows that this is true about God. But what is the concrete objective evidence for God being love? Is it just that, well, we feel like God is love? We'd like him to be love. No, the Bible tells us that God has shown his love to us. He's demonstrated his love. For God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. Jesus said himself, greater love has no one than this than one would lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he was doing for us. So we know that this awe-inspiring God, this this God that uh, if if we just knew him and just the sense of his raw power and wisdom would would be very, very disturbing and troubling to us, especially as sinners. We know that this God loves us and he thinks about us and his thoughts toward us are precious. And he thinks about us so 
regularly. We are perpetually on his mind. What is the sum of the thoughts of God toward me? Those precious thoughts, David says, they're, they're more than the sand. I can't even number them. In Jeremiah chapter 29, God is speaking to uh, the exiles uh, from Jerusalem and he's telling them about the, the future plan that he has for them. And he says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of, of peace, not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And although that was spoken and is prophetic of the future of Israel, it certainly has application for us as believers as well. We can take that. So I can conclude from Jeremiah 29 and Psalm 139, verse 17, that God's thoughts, his precious thoughts toward me are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give me a future and a hope. So because God is love, now I look at those attributes that we're talking about, and instead of being stricken with dread, I'm filled with joy. Because I know that the God who loves me, he knows everything about me. And he still loves me. You know, there are people today, maybe you're one of them, who would have said in your own heart, man, if this person that I care so much about, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. You live with that fear. But you know, God knows you. He knows your down sitting, your uprising, knows everything you've ever did, everything you've ever, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought. And guess what? He loves you. And so you see, this this brings tremendous comfort. He knows everything about me. He knows my fears. He knows my needs. He knows. what the future holds. He knows all of those things. And so I can rest. Wow, God, God knows. I can rest in so many things. I don't have to, 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 to strive or, or to stress out over so many things. Many, many things I can just simply sit back and say, well, you know, God knows. God knows all of these things. And then that great truth of him being omnipresent. God's everywhere. Sometimes we get afraid, like, well, you know, I'm going I'm to go here. What if, what if God's not there? No, God is there. And wherever you go, because you're a child of God, here's what you can know about God being there. He's there to bless, because that's what he does for his people. And there's no place that you can go, not only here on the earth, but there's no place you can go beyond the earth where God isn't there to bless. And then the omnipotence of God. God has all power to assure his plan for our lives will be accomplished. So you see, again, we rest because there's nothing that's gonna overthrow the plan of God. There's nothing that's gonna thwart his purpose. There's nothing that can ultimately oppose him and resist his will. And so we fall back <coughs> on these things and we take tremendous comfort 
in these truths because of God's love for us. All of these things are a blessing and a benefit to us. And as Paul put it in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? And then at the end of that chapter, he just says, I'm persuaded that nothing, life, death, any created thing, present, future, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. (laughs) Anyway, I'll try to pray. So Lord, thank you that these things are true. And we just receive them from you today. In Jesus' name, amen.